Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about Quantum of Solace, starring Daniel Craig, Olga Kurilenko, Matthew Amrilrich, Gemma Arterton, Judy Dench, Jeffrey Wright, Giancarlo Giannini, and directed by Mark Forster. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is Arnie, and I thank all the listeners, not for the Quantum of Solace, but the Mountain of Solace they've had with me for sitting through all these James Bond films. This is the last one I'm watching at home. Indeed, I can't believe we're almost there. Oh, I cannot wait till Skyfall. It is out. I've probably actually seen it by the time that this movie has gone to air, but I've made a conscious choice not to see it before we've reviewed this one, the middle chapter. Yeah, and I am completely, as much as possible in this day and age, completely blank on what's going to happen in Skyfall. I know there's Q in there. I know Judy Dench is back. I know Daniel Craig is back. I know it's James Bond, and that's about it. Oh, and Adele does a theme song. Oh, spoiler alert. Adele plays a lesbian fencing instructor. <laughs> <laughs> and funny enough, Daniel Craig won't kiss her either. <laughs> How funny is that? So I'm looking forward. And yes, by the time this is released, I have probably have seen the movie, maybe more than once. But who knows? Needless to say, at this point in time, when we're recording this, I try not to get too excited or hyped about things. I try to experience as much as I can in the moment. But I'd be a fool to even try to pass off to you two or anyone else listening right now that it's been five years since Quantum of Solace came out, folks. I'm ready for a new James Bond, and I'm glad they're still doing with Daniel Craig. So I'm looking forward to our podcast next week very much indeed. And if we had seen Skyfall by now, we might have maybe had a better grasp on what this movie is. There's a lot of dangling threads here. I got to say, you mentioned it last time, Arnie, about feeling ripped off about, you know, not having everything tied up. This one, I did not realize that they were going for a new series that was going to be so densely woven and that I did not expect that this was the middle chapter of a trilogy and that so much would be pulling from the last movie and presumably pushing on into the next film. You're so optimistic. You're hoping that when we record Skyfall, we have resolution and answers. I'm not as convinced, given that Craig has signed for so many more films. And as far as this goes being the middle chapter, all these James Bond films we've seen, this is our first real sequel, isn't it? This is the first one that feels like a saga versus an episodic storytelling. You're absolutely right. This is the first time it is a legitimate sequel. This entire movie was came up with by the producer on the set of Casino Royale, and they thought it'd be a great idea for the first time, because they're rebooting the series, to try their hand at a direct sequel. And we can talk about how well they did, 
But it has to be said, and we should probably say it as early as possible, that the writing of this movie was hindered by the writer's strike. You can tell, if you know that information, that the writer's strike affected what we see here today. I did not put that together, but oh, does that make so much more sense! Ah, I'm going to just breathe a sigh of relief because I couldn't believe how much more difficult and tangled this film feels than the last one, which I felt was very sophisticated and asked a lot of its audience to try to keep up. This one is that times a hundred here. I mean, they really asked a lot. I remember going to see Quantum of Solace with someone who was a big Bond fan. We were both jazzed about this. Neither one of us had gone back to watch Casino Royale. And when the credits rolled, I turned to him and I'm like, did you understand it? I mean, I had forgotten that Giancarlo Gianni was even in the last movie. So to have him come back, to have Felix come back, to start out at the beginning of this movie, I gotta say, you gotta do your homework for Quantum of Solace. You can't just walk into this casual like, oh, I've never seen a Bond movie before. Let me go into this one with this strange name that I don't like. I did not see this in theaters. I kind of wanted to because I saw Casino Royale just before Quantum of Solace was released. I felt prepared for it, but it was kind of one of those things where we had a home theater. I didn't feel an impetus to go to in theaters. And then, now playing, I'm like, well, we're going to do James Bond eventually. So I have never seen it. I am so freaking glad that I never just one day picked it up on Netflix and popped it in. Because I wouldn't have remembered any of this shit that you're talking about. You don't. I watch these movies three days apart, and that is exactly how I recommend everyone do it. That's right. I mean, the casual viewer would remember that Vesper Lynn drowned in an elevator and that Bond was sad. They might remember that he picked up this Mr. White guy at the end of the movie. I really don't think much more would have stayed with you if you had only seen it once. Well, you guys are both right, and we can prove it. We have recorded proof of that. As Arnie just said, Now Playing will get around to it eventually. Well, this is one of the first movies I ever reviewed for Now Playing back in 2008 when it was released. Me and Alicia sat here in this very room I'm sitting in right now, reviewed this movie for you guys. You can hear it in the archives section at NowPlayingPodcast.com. And the first thing we talked about practically was, Stuart, that she did not know that the guy in the trunk was the guy from the end of the movie the last time. And I recommended to people what Arnie just said. Watch the movie before you watch Quantum of Solace because you would get much more out of Quantum of Solace, especially in the beginning, if you were familiar enough with Casino Royale. It's just remarkable that you said that now, (laughs) Arnie, because it's so true. It picks up right where the last one leaves off, practically, and you really need to know that to understand what's going on in these beginning scenes. Well then, Arnie, I think it falls to you to give us the plot. Although I would hazard a guess... That if I gave it to Brock, he would have a very different plot than what you're going to give me. And I think if I were to do it, I'd have an entirely different one than you two guys. I mean, I really think that this is one like a Rorschach where, well, it'll be interesting to see what details you pluck out of this stew. Let's just say I'm going to go high level. Okay. Wise choice. Picking up right where the last film left off, Bond is interrogating Mr. White, who claims his organization, Quantum, has people everywhere. To prove it, one of M's bodyguards tries to kill Bond and M, but Bond saves them both. Following a trail from Mr. White's apartment, Bond is led to environmentalist Dominic Green, who is helping an exiled Bolivian General Medrano overthrow the Bolivian government. In this specific plot, Green is helping Medrano overthrow the Bolivian government in exchange for a piece of the Bolivian desert 
which gives Green a monopoly on the Bolivian water supply, which he can then sell back to the Bolivians at inflated rates. No, I can't say Bolivia more in that sentence. In doing so, Bond also comes in conflict with the CIA and Felix Leiter, who don't care if Green is a terrorist because they need to keep peace with him, thinking that he is going to find oil in the desert and the Americans need oil, as do the British who actually work against Bond trying to stop him from going after Green. But Bond goes rogue and teams with Montes to go after Medrano and Green. Green kills Bond's MI6 caretaker Strawberry Fields by drowning her in oil. And in a showdown in the desert, Camille kills Medrano, and Bond eventually captures Green, interrogates the man to find out about Quantum, then leaves him in the desert to die. With Green's information, Bond travels to Russia, where he finds Vesper Lynn's former lover, Yusuf Cabria with a Canadian agent. Yusef is a member of Quantum who intentionally seduces women who could be valuable assets to the Shadow Organization. Women like Vesper. Reinstated back to MI6, Bond has learned restraint, but Quantum is still out there for Skyfall as credits roll. So, do you disagree with any of that? I think you did a pretty good job of parsing. Yeah, I think that's basically the story, but a lot of details that we got to get into right here. Let's start with the title. What does this title mean? The frown on my face when they said, hey, they got the new Bond title. It's Quantum of Solace. I didn't even know what that meant. I laughed that they didn't want to call License to Kill, License to Revoke, because they didn't think Americans knew what revoke meant. I did not know what Quantum meant. I did not know what they were talking about. This is a terrible title. It already sets the tone for confusion. I'll admit that while I was able to parse the words and figure out what it means, it sounded very sci-fi. It sounded like Quantum Leap meets Solaris. (laughs) I talked about this on my review of the Quantum of Solace short story over at Books and Nachos, which you can hear over there, folks, as part of our retrospective of Bond. And the title comes from the Fleming story, Quantum of Solace. has nothing to do with this movie at all. But the title actually means it's the modicum of respect you have to have for somebody in a relationship before it completely goes away. If you lose that quantum of solace in a relationship, it's done for. And that's a very basic way to explain it here. I remember you mentioning this story. This is the one where Bond gets in the middle of a divorce or something. Like It was a very strange short story, it sounded like. It was basically Bond hears a story about a relationship falling apart to a degree that you don't normally see in a relationship. Like, it's really messy and disgusting how this man eventually treats the woman he divorces. And it's a very interesting story, not necessarily a great Bond story, but an engrossing story nonetheless. I go into more about the title and what it means in that review. I don't want to harp on it here, but for this movie, they mentioned the word quantum a few times, and Daniel Craig tried to bring it in all together. If you take the meaning from the story, and then you talk about his journey as a character here, about how he comes to grips with his relationship with Vesper, and how he lost the quantum of solace, and how he regains it by the end of the movie. Does he say the words? He never says the words quantum of solace. No. Yeah. I remembered that he did. I thought for some reason at the end of this, it was part of his kiss off to Dominic that he said, I'm not going to show you a quantum of solace about you being bad or whatever. I remember that this was a big moment. And then when it didn't come, I was like, I just think he ought to rename it. I mean, really, if you're not even going to use that title, the most distracting Unnecessary title since A Clockwork Orange, I think. You gotta put it in the movie or it doesn't mean anything. I actually will give them credit. Yes, 
A lot of people had problems with the title. It took me a while to figure out that that was a James Bond movie. But the fact that they're going back and trying to stick to Fleming titles again does mean a lot. Now, I don't think there's a Fleming short story called Skyfall, or if there is, you guys still have to continue your books and nachos to read it to me. But I like that they're trying to at least keep that. And it's still better than James Bond in New York. <laughs> Could have named it Risico, which is a cooler sounding title, and as confusing. Then instead of thinking of Quantum Leap and Solaris, I'm thinking of Serpico. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can make up a lot of different plots based on a title like this. It does not set the tone for Bond. I bet you most people that walked up to the ticket counter said, give me one for Bond. You know, they didn't say, <laughs> I would like to see Quantum of Solace. I mean, I just think really this may be the worst title in the whole canon and don't use it. But I guess we will find out that Quantum is the name of that phantom group, that they're going to dive right back into those questions you wanted answers, Arnie, and that we're going to find out that there's a Quantum group and Bond is going to try to get to the heart of it or get somewhere with it when we kick up here in the opening scene. The movie comes right at you at the beginning of this with a car chase. Bond is being chased. We don't yet know why. I don't remember him losing a door in the beginning of the chase, but when we see the Bond's car, eventually he has already lost a door, so we're picking up the chase midway. But right away with the action scene up the top, you can tell right away it's a whole different kind of movie. Did you guys get that impression from this start when you're barreling down the way with the way this whole action scene unfolds that even though it's a direct sequel, as we'll learn very soon, it's not really a direct sequel in tone. It's just a direct sequel in plot. The most aggressively edited Bond movie since Honor Majesty's Secret Service. It's the first movie I can recall since that one where I felt the filmmaking stood up and jumped up and said, look at me, look at me, look at me. I mean, how could you not notice the lightning way that this thing is cut? Not just in action scenes. In every way, Mark Forster uses editing to really just give you all kinds of information all the time. It's a giant information dump because every second you're getting a new image to process. It's overwhelming. I'm having a lot of trouble following what's going on. We actually cut back to the pedals of the car, whether it be the clutch or the accelerator or the brake. I just had so much trouble following who is who, what is what, what's going on. In this scene and the next action scene, too, we'll get right into. I just don't understand why it had to be so frenetic. If you had an action scene like the last one where they had running through the construction scene and you're able to follow everything, here they do the exact opposite. It's like they have it hyperkinetic, but they don't really allow the audience to take a breath at all. And I think it hinders the enjoyment of the action scene because it's too overwhelming. There's too much going on and it's confusing. It didn't bother me, but I'm used to watching a lot of fast cut action movies, Fast and the Furious, things along those lines. So it didn't seem out of the ordinary for a modern action scene. I, I agree with you, Arnie. I think that that's exactly what they're doing. Bond wants to keep pace with the trends. They know kids today take Ridlin. They want to keep up <laughs> with that youth audience. They are trying to deliver a movie that is more to the pacing that they might expect and like. And so it's a choice. You know, do I like it? Sometimes I think it helps the movie greatly. I'll cite some examples where I think the rapid editing is actually a wonderful device, a great way of doing shorthand. But on other hands, well, yeah, when uh, you have a plot this hard to follow, for me, I want to take a breath. I want a smidgen of patience. You know, I want to see them slow down, have that boat ride that they did in Venice. 
give us time to really soak in the atmosphere, but it's a different director. I think key to all of this is if they had gone back to Martin Campbell, we probably would have had a movie that felt more like Casino Royale. They went with a different guy, and this is the guy that's going to give us World War Z next year. He's giving us something different, and I'm going to try to ride with it. I recognize the difference instantaneously. It isn't my aesthetic per se, but let's see where it goes. Let's see if I can hold on. I mean, it certainly is exhilarating. I certainly don't need them to put any more adrenaline into this cocktail. You know, Stuart, I get that from the tone and the editing, and I just don't need that. In certain scenes in this movie, it does work, but here at the top, it doesn't help me get invested. As far as Mark Forster goes, I've seen his other work before this. I had seen Stranger Than Fiction, which I liked. I had seen Finding Neverland, which I loved. And those movies are not this movie. <laughs> if you look at his previous work and then you see this first opening car chase and the way it's edited, it's strange if you think Mark Forster's directing this. That's true. Monster Ball is not cut like this. The Kite Runner is not cut like this. He's known for drama. I would think hiring him, you'd be thinking of a guy that's going to give you more of those dramatic moments like last time. I'm sure the producers were as puzzled as anybody when he delivered this film. Now, I've heard a rumor about this movie. It is the very shortest Bond movie ever made, and that there is 40 to 50 minutes of plot that just got cut out of it. I don't know if that's true, but it certainly feels true watching this movie. None of those scenes were on the DVD that I got for this podcast review, so yeah. I can't tell you 100%. But I can believe that. I mean, doesn't this movie feel like it had a lot of stuff cut out? As we go through it, I think I'm going to cite areas where I'd like to have seen a lot more information. But it does. It feels abbreviated. It feels like this movie may have had those kind of dramatic moments you're looking for, Brock. And then when they finally got down to the editing room and realized what they had, just said, ah, cut it to shit and give them something with a kick to it. I mean, it really feels like this is post-production choices that are pushing this movie in this rapid pace. I'm the newbie to this series. This is my first time seeing Quantum of Solace. But now that you said that, Stuart, that clicks so hard. I mean, there have been so many movies. Iron Man 2 is one that comes to mind where you just see it missing. You just see that they've cut important story points for the sake of expediency. And yeah, I think that's the case here. That said, given the movie we're about to review, I don't know that I would want 50 minutes of them setting up laborious plots. I really don't. As it is, it might have made it clearer, but one of the things I like about this movie is how fleet it is. It doesn't belabor the point the way so many others have. I agree with you there, Arnie. I don't think I need 50 more minutes in this movie either, but I'm agreeing with Stuart. I think this editing in this first scene and the next chase sequence also is, oh crap, we got to do something to make this more enjoyable. And the proof in the pudding for me is later in the movie, they don't use this editing style. But you know what? I like it. When we get to this big battle you're talking about. All right, so we're jumping into the movie. White's in the trunk. That's the punchline. I think it's a good car chase. I'm excited to see Siena, Italy. I think it's beautiful. Seeing M at the lair, I mean, all of this is working for me. I mean, I'm not disliking it. It's just a stark contrast. But then I was really surprised because we talked in the last review about how that was the making of Bond. And I kind of thought that, okay, you've done Bond Begins. Now we're in a regular Bond film. We're opening with the pre-credits action sequence. Check. No gun barrel. Yeah. Yeah. 
How did you feel about that, Brock? You had a problem with that last time a little bit. Well, no, I said last time they used it properly, I thought, because they're trying to do a new thing with Bond. So when they finally gave me a hint of it to open the movie up with the credit sequence, I'm like, okay, I'll go with that. I get what they're doing there. Here, I want my gun barrel. If the last movie was the making of Bond, then I want my gun barrel. Now, of course, by the end of the movie, I realize why they didn't have it. But I remember distinctly the first time I watched it that I wanted it. Yeah, they put it at the end. It's here, but it's the end. It's not how they want to kick things off. It's a sequel. It's a direct sequel to the last movie. It's supposed to be a continuation of the last movie. So therefore, why would there be another gun barrel? Of course, then why would there be another opening song? Yes. But that's what I'm thinking they're saying with no gun barrel yet, folks. We're not done with the story. I want to say right off the bat, I'm a White Stripes fan, much more than I was a Chris Cornell fan. So hearing that Jack White was going to do the theme makes me excited. And you know what? I think he brings the rock. One of the things I'm impressed about with this song is I think it rocks harder because he's got that fuzz guitar going. I think that there is a disconnect with the partner that he's chosen to help craft this song, however. The White Keys, as I heard them jokingly referred to, it's not only Jack White, it is Alicia Keys, someone I'm far less in admiration of. And they're harmonizing on this song. They're meshing of the song, or lack thereof. It's a weird theme here. I like parts of this, and then there are bridges and moments where I just think, did anyone get the auto-tuner? I mean, please. This is a strange, strange Bond song, Another Way to Die. That's funny, because I am far more familiar with Alicia Keys than Jack White. I keep thinking Jack White was one of the founding members of Tenacious D. (laughs) I say Jack Black all the time when I mean Jack White, yes. But he's great. I love the White Stripes. I love his solo album. He had an album, Blunderbuss, this year. It's good. Go check it out. I'm much more a fan of him than I am Chris Cornell, and I'm a fan of bringing the rock for this Craig era. I just think that this song, they're going for Live and Let Die. I think they're going for those kind of weird tempo changes and unexpected moments that really give you a complicated song. It's just, okay, it's just when they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, that whole bridge is like, Cheryl Crow-esque for me. (laughs) It's not great. And again, like the last one, it doesn't even feel like a Bond song to me. The last one at least had some strands that made me think they were paying homage to the Bond songs of old. This one just sounded like a single that they'd picked to put on here. But yeah, it's a strange mashup. I agree. I like both these artists separately. But these are two tastes that don't go well together for me. I don't like this song. I don't like what they're doing in the opening scene either with the imagery. I'm not really crazy about any of it. It's a pretty average to poor Bond song for me. I was disappointed after hearing the two artists they got for this. And then I heard this the first time I watched the movie. I don't dig it. I really don't. I was thinking with Jack White and Alicia Keys, you could do something really great. And I think they just didn't hit a home run here. I feel I like it a lot more than what you guys are sounding like. I'm putting this in golden eye territory of I expected a lot more of the people than what they gave me. But what they gave me isn't half bad. I think it's okay. I think it's a curious choice. I'm going to put it probably smack dab in the middle when I rank the songs. Stuart, see, I would say it's half bad. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's a half empty, half full uh, way of looking at the glass. I'm seeing what I like to drink, and you're seeing what's missing. So right after the song, we get White interrogated outside a horse race thing. I don't really understand where they are, with M there in the room, with White in the chair. And he says that line you said earlier, we have people everywhere, and then M's bodyguard, who we saw in the last movie, her assistant, I believe, shoots 
and runs, and they have this chase sequence right there. First, let me say Le Chiffre is a far better interrogator than MI6. I would be far more <laughs> likely to give answers to Le Chiffre than MI6. <laughs> but I love the humor that is completely portrayed by Judy Dench, who is not someone I equate with comedy. After the scene when she goes, when they say they have people everywhere, they don't normally mean in the room. <laughs> <laughs> I think I suspected he was a bad guy just because she names him. Like, normally I don't pay attention to anyone else in the room other than when it's M and Bond. It's like, oh, red shirts. You know, it's just other suits. They don't matter here. The fact that she says a couple times, Mitchell, have you checked the perimeter? Mitchell, well, this. I'm like, who's this Mitchell dude? Oh, he's got to be important here. So he's got to be the one to pull out the gun. Stupid guy. He doesn't shoot Bond first. He deserves to die. He's not a double O. Yeah. He doesn't think that way. Stuart, you said a second ago about the opening car chase with the editing and they're trying to get the sensibility thing. I had a bigger problem with it this time than the last viewing five years ago. Throughout this scene, the interrogation and then the actual chase, they keep cutting back to the horses, the hooves, the crowd outside. Is there some sort of symbolism that I'm not completely getting? Or are they trying to elicit a response from me because the chase itself is lackluster? Because I thought the chase itself was the most interesting part, and I got mad they kept on going back to the crowd on the horses. Yeah, they don't end up there. I just thought it was a foreshadowing. Like, oh, okay, well, they're going to run on the roofs and they're going to wind up in this very public environment finishing their fight in front of a horse race or whatever. But no, it's just a cutaway. Maybe they didn't have the coverage or maybe they just liked the way that it felt. A symbolism? I don't know. I don't see horses again. Last time we saw a horse, Roger Moore was flying out of his ass. I mean, I don't associate horses with Bond that often. I don't know why they're doing it. But I like this chase. I'm hearing pushback from you. I think this is one of the times where the editing works. It's not nearly the chase we had in Madagascar with the parkour guy, but we again see Bond do some impressive leaps, keeping pace with someone that's faster and got an edge to him. And you gotta love when they go through the glass ceiling and are dangling off the scaffolding. I mean, there's good stuff here. Well, see, Stuart, I agree with you. There's a lot of good stuff going on here. I really love the ending of it. I love he's dangling and trying to reach it, and then he shoots right at the screen, and then we get the fight is over. The rooftop thing is great for me, too. My problem, again, is the editing. The editing is trying to solicit a response from me, and it's not working. I find it manipulative. I find it unnecessary. They have a good chase here. And then he just cut it to shreds for no reason, intercutting all those, as we find out, completely non-sequitur edits. Don't make any sense. In the last one, in the car chase, I can understand what they were doing there with the cuts they were using. Here with the horse race in the crowd, it doesn't pay off at all. I mean, maybe they're saying there are two horses going at it for a long haul. I have no idea. I just think it's lame and it takes me out of it. But I got to tell you, in the video game of Quantum Asylum, as I mentioned last podcast, they have recreated this environment so well in that video game. To watch it here, it's remarkable. So bravo to the creators of that game. And it was really a fun level to play. So yeah, I agree. There's some good stuff here, but bad editing choices. And I'm kind of like I was with the car chase. It just is a chase. I'm excited. I'm into it. I'm not overthinking the horses. Although, Stuart, we did see him one more time. You forgot a view to a kill. Oh, yes. That's true, true. Overthinking the horses, Arnie, they went back to it so many times. Why go back if it wasn't going to have any meaning to it or blatant meaning to it or just maybe go back into that crowd? It just seems so obvious that they were trying to say something, but they didn't say anything with it. I'm guessing, Brock, that this is some big thing in Siena, that if he went there, they would go, oh, this is our horse festival and... 
we're known for this. I just think that this is my ignorance about not knowing what their local culture does with horses. Bond always likes to do travelogue stuff. If he goes somewhere, he wants to work in what the place is famous for into the scenario. They just don't do it very seamlessly here. It's happening elsewhere and it never becomes a part of this chase. So that's why it's awkward. You know, one thing I heard that's weird that I can't watch this scene and not feel icky about, Daniel Craig lost the tip of his finger filming this scene. Like, he's been permanently scarred. What? Yeah, it's gone. Well, I guess he doesn't have that pinky anymore, huh? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If that's where it lived, she might have divorced him. He said that he had to get in much better shape for this movie because the last one kicked his ass. Even though he did get in better shape, this is the one he loses the fingertip on, which was, I thought, pretty humorous. Yeah. He looks tougher this time to me. Last time, I was really getting that Alfred E. Newman vibe quite a bit. Here, I'd be afraid to say that to him. He'd kick my ass. He's in much better shape. He was beefier last time. He's much leaner, but he's in much better shape physically, it seems. It really is a nice way to physically transform himself. Unfortunately, if it's supposed to take place (laughs) directly after the last one, then it doesn't quite fit. But yeah, we'll give it to him. His hair is longer, too. It happens. We'll give it to him. I'm wondering about the five years it's take between this one and the next one, but we'll get to that on Friday. So we kick back to London and M is trying to reconcile how someone could work for her for eight years and then pull a gun. I mean, I think that these are really neat M development scenes. I really like watching Judy Dench in this. I wish she had more to do in this movie. She's mostly reactionary. She spends a lot of time challenging Bond and telling him there's no one to trust. But I do think she trusts Bond. As much as they have battles here and she cuts his credit cards later and it always seems like she's squabbling with him. It feels like they are the relationship here. This is the Bond girl for this movie. This is the one that really matters to Bond. I think his relationship to M is as core as what Vesper was to the last film. And the fact that he calls her mom, I do kind of think of her as like Bond's mom. I like the way they use her here. I had a problem when they really tried to make a character of M back in The World is Not Enough. Here... I think it really kind of works. It reminded me a bit of Never Say Never Again with the antagonistic M versus the supportive M. But she never felt like she got in the way of Bond the way she did back there. It felt integral to the story because you say she's reactionary, but that's kind of what I want her to be. This is a Bond movie. I want it to be about Bond and she's reacting to what Bond is doing. But yet she's also very sly and cunning. You say you think she trusts him. Yeah, she says that right out. I mean, right after she says there's a capture or kill order on him and he escapes, she says, follow him, I trust him. So even though there's the capture or kill order, she is in his side and perhaps even manipulating him to figure this all out. I got something different there, Arnie. I think that he went back to tell her to give the woman who died some honors or something. He was doing the right thing there. Instead of saving his own ass, he comes back, risks it more to make sure that woman is honored properly in her death, and then escapes again. That changes M a little bit towards Bond. I also want to say that while I do like Judy Dench's performance in this movie, and I do like the relationship between the two characters, I think they went back to M quite too many times for those reaction shots and her having to answer to her superiors on Bond's behavior. And the meta-knowledge of knowing that they had a weaker script and they had differences and problems with it because of the writer's strike tells me that these extra scenes are here to bridge gaps in the storytelling. But watching the movie, they work, but I think they do it too much. I'm betting that there's actually more of this stuff. I'm betting that this is the stuff on the cutting room floor because what we're going to find out pretty quickly 
is that Bond is going to have to go to Haiti and meets the big bad of the film, Dominic Green. Green is having a relationship independent of what Bond is fighting him over in Bolivia with London. This green environmentalist character is going to do something with London. He's working with the Americans. There's all of this stuff implied about the fact that he is a pioneer of new energy sources. And so I think that a lot of the stuff that might be here is the fact that the prime minister wants to support green and M keeps coming to him with information, if not quite evidence, trying to show that he's a bad guy, and it's not enough to break the deal. I think that that stuff, it comes through here, but I do feel like I don't really understand the stakes as M is being told, no, get Bond under control, we don't buy his reports. I just feel like, yes, ultimately, her story is abbreviated here by several cuts that were made. But of course, the relationship we care about is Bond and the bad guy, so the one to focus on here is Bond and Haiti. And I really liked Le Chiffre last time, and here we get Dominic Green. Because he's this rich environmentalist, it started to take me back a little bit. I was having shades of Tomorrow Never Dies and the Steve Jobs-ish figure there. I kind of was thinking Bill Gates being a billionaire philanthropist, but I wasn't sure what to make of him. He never really comes across as evil enough for me. He's a bit slimy. I could almost see him played in a different universe by James Spader. (laughs) I agree with Arnie. I don't think he's slimy enough. I don't think he's evil enough. I don't really get massive big bad off this guy. I get what they're going for, and I like the idea very much, but I just don't get enough evil. They want to make him so gray. You know, I think it's ironic. On one hand, I think he does want to help the planet or pose as this environmentalist. But ironically, he also wants to control it. One thing I cannot figure out watching this movie is, is he creating green areas around the world or is he collecting oil or is he collecting water? I think part of the problem is I really don't know what he is doing. Sometimes we're told he's buying up land that's for an oil pipeline. Sometimes he's saying that I buy up land so that I can preserve it. I really don't get what he's doing. I think they would have helped this movie a lot if they had some really clear definitions about how he is subverting the image of a world environmentalist. Here, I feel like sometimes he's written to be an oil baron. The way I took it was that he was known as an environmentalist to give him a good PR image, but I never got that he was that into it. With this desert, I think he's pulling a grift. I think he's telling the British and the Americans, hey, I'm going to find oil in this desert and it's for you guys. But that's a joke. It's a lie. What he's really doing is keeping them at bay while he overthrows this Bolivian government. It's all about profit. It's kind of like those old Bond movies where I'm like, oh, it's not about world domination. It's just about money. It's about getting this desert land for free so that he can then screw the people over by charging them a lot more just to drink water. And so it's just like in the last one where Le Chiffre was blowing up airplanes to make stock money. This is all about playing the political game, convincing the British and the Americans, oh, I'm going to find you a source of oil. There's no oil there. It's water that he's going to turn around and just Shanghai away from the people who currently own it. And he's also helping the government of Bolivia get overthrown in the process, which gives his organization, I believe, 
an extra ally in the region or maybe even a puppet government. That part isn't completely clear. I think Arnie nailed it, though, with the water thing. I just didn't get evil enough off this villain. I think the plot is right what Arnie's saying about how it's a misdirection on one end for the greater good of the big organization thing like the Shifra had. It's kind of cool that it's like that. It's just not very well explained. It's explained late in the movie, but it's not very well explained. Nobody goes to an environmentalist for oil. You either drill for oil or you preserve the planet. That is the big disconnect that I'm having here. The fact that the U.S. and London could think that this world-renowned environmentalist knows where oil is and is going to help them get it is the first of many confusions that I'm having here. I think you're right, Arnie. I think that is what they're trying to set up here with America and London and their interest in Bolivia. I think it's meant to mirror the actual very real relationship America has with Argentino and Hugo Chavez. I just think that it's really hard to sell that Dominic is the bad guy. It would make more sense if you had the Hugo Chavez figure, General Madrano, be the big bad here. The fact that they want to go with this little Roman Polanski-looking guy, and the fact that he's just not big enough to be a typical Bond villain, it does throw the movie off. It does feel hard to grab onto. But I want to point out, they are going for a bigger villain than him. Where they get into trouble is that he is only one member of this larger cabal, this terrorist cell, this quantum that is also a member of White and Le Chiffre. I think they want to emphasize that there is no central bad. There is no Osama bin Laden. There is no Hugo Chavez. There is all of these guys, and they have equal weight. And I think that's why this movie feels so cluttered and messy, is because they can't settle on one supervillain. But I like what Matthew Almeric is doing. I had seen this guy, he had probably got this role because he did this incredibly traumatizing movie called Diving Bell and Butterfly about a man that's paralyzed, can't move any of his body except blinking, and it's told from his POV. It's just one of those movies, it's good, but I'll never watch it again. It's so painful. I think he's a great actor. I think he's got a great stare. I think that there is some menace to him. I just don't think that he's written well. I think he kind of reminds me of the villain in World is Not Enough. Like him, like what he's doing, but just not well utilized. Ultimately, undercut by the way the script writes him. I have not seen that movie. I have never seen him before. I agree with you. I think he's underwritten. In a couple of scenes that he does get things to do, though, I do like him. And I do think I wanted more evil. I wanted more slimy. But when it's a one-on-one conversation, like with the girl in the boat right off the harbor, or with the general later in the movie, or even giving that speech to the group. I like what he's doing in those scenes. So I could see there's potential in the actor. I just think he got shafted in some of the other aspects of the character and the way it's written. Why does he want his girlfriend killed? When Bond becomes involved in the story, it's because he's killed a man that was hired to do the hit on her. He has this kind of cool, very abbreviated fight on a balcony where he knifes Edmund Slate then goes downstairs, gets Edmund Slate's suitcase, then is picked up by our Bond girl. Cammy Montez opens the suitcase and sees a picture and a gun and realizes, oh, I'm supposed to shoot you. This is how they write Bond into this scenario. This seems like a very messy way of getting us to Dominic Green. The scene directly after this, when she confronts Green at the harbor, I believe tells us why he wants to kill her. He has figured out, finally, that she's only with him and sleeping with him to get to the general, and the general is there. He cannot risk her finding the general there and trying to kill him or hurt him in any way. That's what I get from it. 
I'm just very confused by all of this. I mean, he says that, but he says it in the, to think I initially thought you were using me to get to the general. And then when he offers her to the general, I'm like, is he just callous and he's going to do whatever it takes to make the deal? And he thinks the general wants her and the general killed her parents and all of that. And this is just taking me back to the Bond plots of yore, where there's a lot going on, and there's a line said, and I'm not entirely clear why people are doing what they're doing, and exactly how Bond's going from place to place, or how every little lackey fits into the machinations of the overall plot. It's one of those I just have to sit back and kind of go with the gist of it because I'm not getting this little detail out of it, like why this is happening and why she is now trying to kill Bond. It's the polar opposite of the last film where you really saw him sleuthing and understanding how he finds point C and gets there from point B. Here, I don't even know why we're in Haiti. Something about money in Mitchell's wallet that traced back here. I mean, I don't know. We aren't supposed to ask. It doesn't matter. You're right. We aren't asked to pay attention to the plot this time. We are not supposed to care about the mystery. What's driving this story is the action and I think the pathos. The fact that Bond is still tortured and wanting some kind of closure with Vesper is the drive, the dramatic thrust of all of this action. But Cammy is the character they bring in here to teach Bond how to deal with vengeance. But I just don't understand what's going on here, the way she's introduced. It just feels very messy. The fact that we learned she's a Bolivian Secret Service agent. I thought she was dating Green to help the Secret Service get information on that. That It's coincidental that he's collaborating with the man that murdered her family, right? I mean, that's just good luck. She should be doing her job. This can't all be about vengeance for her. See, Stuart, I got that she was doing her job, and when this new aspect came up, her job changed. Although she was all about revenge, I think she had a line at the end of the movie, like Inigo Motoya has at the end of Princess Bride, I've been in the revenge business so long, what do I do now? Or something like that, I'm paraphrasing, but it could very well be, it's a little confusing. You said something a second ago, though, I really want to accentuate. What's making this movie move and go, and what's interesting about the movie is the pathos of Bond and how he's dealing with Vesper, and from this moment on here, when we meet her... I'm getting a lot of that, and that's what I'm really liking of Daniel Craig and what this movie's doing. It's like we see Bond dealing with this loss and coming to grips of what it really means and what it means to him. And that stuff really does work for me in this movie. He never sleeps with her, right? This is a teaching character. This is not a traditional Bond babe. They never bed. And she's beautiful. I mean, this is one of the most beautiful Bond women we've ever had. And she is not asked to play that role. I think the real shocker of this movie is that she is a collaborator and a therapist, someone that by showing her own story about coming to terms with someone that has ruined her life is helping Bond process Vesper. It's really weird. I think it's the most unique relationship Bond has ever had with a woman on screen. That said, when we talked about Halle Berry and Jinx and how she was so prominent on the poster... I hate that they've made this character so prominent on the DVD art and things, where it looks like she's an equal to Bond, a co-star with Bond. I much prefer the original theatrical poster where he's alone with the big gun, because she is a teacher, but this is not her movie. This is still very much a Bond film. She falls out of it, like most Bond girls do, for a good half the film before she comes back into it. Yeah, he drops her off. They had this cool boat chase in which he recognizes 
that her being sold back to the man that raped and murdered her family is going to give her a similar end. They don't short us on the action. They have a cool action scene of rescue, but then he just like kind of hands her off to a towel boy and goes off about his way. I really liked most of this boat scene. I complained about the first two action scenes and the way they edited it. Here, I liked the way they edited it. I wasn't crazy about the boat over Bond's shoulder flipping over. I would have liked to see the actual boat being destroyed full frame. But I felt the editing in this scene and the way they told this chase to us with the editing and the action scenes and the shots they used, much easier to follow and much more entertaining. Unfortunately, it's the third action scene in the movie, so the first two didn't satisfy me, even though they both had nice parts. So with the plot starting and this action scene being easier edited, I'm starting to get back into the movie at this point. Well, I think I'm finally getting a handle on things when we get to Austria, because that's where we really start to get some answers about Quantum. We get a name, at least. We understand what this shadow organization is. It's not Al-Qaeda. It's not some nameless specter entity. Quantum is the real villain behind the last movie and this one. And they like to meet at operas and talk during the performances. How rude. I really was hoping it was Spectre because I'm like, all right, what are they going to make Spectre stand for? Because it can't be what it was before. But no, it's (laughs) Quantum. And this is my favorite scene in the movie taking place right here at the Opera House. First of all, it has the best music. But second of all, I love the way this is cut. I love the way this is shot. I love Bond sleuthing. He gets that earpiece, listens in, then makes himself known and uses his super duper camera phone with a better zoom than the iPhone 5 to get close up shots of everyone who flees. I'm right there with Arnie. This is my favorite scene in this whole movie. And I love the way that Bond is a spy here. Arnie, you said editing. This is what I was talking about earlier, is that in this opera scene, they show us that they can edit this movie in a way that's easy to follow, that tells a great story, that unfolds. And what a brilliant move by Bond to make the guys stand up and how he nails them all this way. Such a smart way to go. Such a clever way to show it to us. And I love the button of white not getting up because he's on to Bond. He's smarter than Bond in this situation and making sure he's under the radar. The whole scene plays out beautifully. That's right. White is here as well. The guy from the beginning, he's back. He's part of this group. He's sort of the leader, I guess. Is he Blofeld? Does this group have a Blofeld? We don't know yet. Yeah, I guess we'll find out on Friday or at least get more answers. We can hope. There's no writer strike not to give us them anyway. Let me put it that way. But it's a cool scene. <laughs> and I'm a little skeptical because I feel like I've seen a lot of action scenes where they layer opera over fighting. And it's a little played out, quite honestly. But this stuff is good with the chasing that proceeds through the kitchen and onto the roof and all that imagery of the giant eye on stage cutting back to it. I think it enhances the paranoia feel. I think it enhances the feeling that anyone could be the enemy and that Bond is alone and who do you trust? I think it's a good scene. And the amount of times they cut back to the opera, that makes sense here because of where they are and what the music is around them and and reminding us that these people are having a very private meeting in a very public place. And they drop names that I'm wondering, will they come back? I mean, they mentioned somebody that owns Siberian Mines. They mentioned somebody that's a telecom giant. These people do not play into the plot of the rest of Quantum of Solace. But I'm wondering if they're going to make an appearance in Skyfall. I'll be looking for Gregor Karakoff and Moshi Seroff. I'll be seeing if they do come back into this plot. Because he does get three names here. And he busts the guy's bodyguard. That's what sort of gets him falling out with him. Is that one of these people works for the Prime Minister. Bond pushes his bodyguard off the roof. Dominic finishes him off with a bullet. And now M is forced to cut him off. Make him go rogue. Bond has to find a new ally in an unlikely place. 
Yeah, this was kind of an interesting turn. On the one hand, it felt like we were revisiting some of Bond's greatest hits here. Okay, he's again on his own. But by the same token, when he goes and finds Mathis from the last movie, I'm like, oh, that makes perfect sense. And I wondered what happened to Mathis at the end of the last one. We were left to believe he could have still been in on it. That's one of Bond's big character moments is he now trusts no one. And just because Vesper was evil doesn't mean Mathis was innocent. And it turns out some time must have passed where Craig could have beefed up because in all this time, Mathis proved his innocence and was bought a villa as an apology. Mm -hmm. Some time has passed. But yeah, I was surprised they brought him back. And I'm not disappointed they did. I think they used him properly here, too. I actually was pretty into the scenes with Mathis and Bond in this movie, as brief as they were. This is where I'm talking about where I like some of the editing for character development here. It starts off with Bond being there and Mathis being like, you're not getting any of my wine. And, you know, Bond starts to work on him. First, he says, I just want some credit cards. I just want a passport. But what he really wants is this guy has worked in South America for seven years. He wants him to come along to go to Bolivia so that he can find out what Dominic's interest is in those alleged oil fields. And the scene ends with Mathis's girlfriend or whatever she is, sunning herself, looking over, and Bond is drinking a glass of wine. And that tells you right there, aha, it's worked. Bond has broken down Mathis. He's going to get what he wants. These two are going to go off and have an adventure together. I like Mathis here better than the last movie. I enjoyed him, but he was one of many characters floating in and out of this. I think he has more to do here. And I'm kind of sad when we find out that he's going to play a very traditional sidekick role for Bond and get whacked when they reach Bolivia. Yeah, but I think he's the best sidekick ever because he does stuff. Bond is in a jam. He gets Bond out of a jam. He does die like a punk, but he at least was integral to the plot. And then when he was no longer integral to the plot, well, we got to write him out somehow. Let's throw him in a dumpster, literally. Yeah, it's really a card death there. Yeah, and I love that this man who's so well-connected who seems to have all the answers in the first movie, and then here, he's out of the game. He's retired. Well, there's no card games for him to announce. <laughs> right, exactly. And he gets back into the game, and he dies. I like that a lot, because he should have stayed out of the game. It's typical, I guess, for movies to do that sort of thing, but I think they really used it well here. I love that he got duped. He may die, but he still has a better time than Felix. Boy, does the American look miserable in this movie. I don't think they ever figured out what to do with Jeffrey Wright in this film. I think he spends the whole movie sitting around with that douche with a mustache, sulking about how much he'd <laughs> rather be playing cards with Bond. This guy with the mustache reminded me of Matt Damon in The Informant. The, the look, I mean. <laughs> yes, exactly. A schmo. Yes, totally. Yeah, it's the mustache. I agree with you, Stuart. I think they wrote Felix in here to have Felix back, but they really didn't understand how to use him best in here. Last time it was great. This time it felt like they had to have him back. Yeah, I'm assuming that these were things that were cut or underwritten or they were going to work on him. I feel like this is part of the movie that I wanted that they just didn't give me, but maybe not. You know, maybe the right answer is if you don't have a really great story this time, get through it fast. I think that Felix is a casualty of that attitude. I kind of liked Felix in this, though, because he's caught in a double bind. He's friends with Bond from the last one, but Duty says to not be friends with Bond. I kind of went with him. I felt like he should have done more, but at least it wasn't the standard Felix role of calling in the cavalry at the end. I love the scene where they meet together in the bar, and Felix did set him up, but yet tells him how much time he has to get out. It's... 
a wonderful caught in the middle role. And at the end, when you find out that Beam lost his job and Felix was promoted and the right people kept their job, he's somebody I'm rooting for, but he's completely coasting off goodwill from the last film. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I'm hoping we see him in Skyfall, and I hope he has more to do there. I hope his promotion leads him to better scripts as well. And speaking of traditional roles, well, we do get a very traditional Bond girl. I didn't think that Cammy fit that role, but Strawberry Fields, she could have been in any Roger Moore movie. And named in the same way. Yes. Yeah. Are you guys familiar with this actress? Because I've seen her before. She was in Clash of the Titans, the remake, and she was in Prince of Persia. And let me tell you, she was hot in the Prince of Persia. They really kind of put a bad wig on her and didn't make her look as pretty here to me. But I thought that she was a pretty bland girl on purpose, obviously. But I was disappointed because I liked her so much in those other movies. When I looked her up, I saw she'd been in stuff that I'd seen, but I didn't recognize her here. She doesn't leave an impression on me. She's hot, but when I walk away, she leaves no taste in my mouth. She is the dullest girl that we've had in the Craig era. I do feel like all of the women that he's been with are complicated and you want to know more. Even that woman that's at the villa with Mathis, I feel like there was more to her story than we saw here. She's just kind of a desk clerk, and Bond is using her too. I mean, she is just there to get a sex need out. I mean, he doesn't fall in love with her. He's not compelled by her. He is using her the way that he has used women in the past. And yeah, consequently, we're more wondering about how Bond is dealing with his grief over Vesper than how she might be enjoying her afternoon in the sack with him. I mean, I just think that she's a functional character here. And really, her punchline is that she gets to have a Goldfinger death. Yes, best death of any Bond girl in the Craig era. And taking the Goldfinger death and making it believable. I believe that somebody can drown in oil. (laughs) Although they didn't spill any and that hotel was so white. How did you not get any drops on the floor? (laughs) (laughs) Room service. It's again the misdirection. I took this as he's telling people, look how much oil I have when he probably got it at a gas station. (laughs) Exactly. Well, to me, obviously, Bond sleeps with her right away to make sure that she gets off his case to bring him back to MI6. I mean, he needs to buy time so he can go to this party. Yeah, this is Connery stuff. This is magic penis stuff. Like, I'm going to take you back to London. Screw, screw, screw. Okay, go run away. I mean, yes, this is him being able to change a woman's will just by his sexual aggression. You're absolutely right. It's classic Bond. And I think Craig kind of needed this. I mean, this movie is becoming so stark that we really did need a little bit of fun here. I mean, I do think that this is heading towards license to kill territory, where it's so grim and so not Bond and feel that you're losing the elements. You're not hitting your mark. I'm sorry, you need to have a superfluous sex scene with a hot bimbo, and it needs to give us something here. I feel like this scene is needed for the formula because they've changed the cocktail so much. I don't know why she would sit there and be filled with oil and how this happens, but I'm glad they do it because it feels very Bondian. It reminds us that we're watching a Bond movie and not a Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. So I get why this girl is here, even though I don't feel like she does a lot. What I don't get is why Cammy keeps floating in here. I mean, I get her theoretically. She's going to teach Bond about vengeance. Bond is going to help her get revenge. She's going to help him get his revenge for Vesper. I get that, but I don't know why he would allow her to go out into the middle of deserts and mull around rock quarries and all of that stuff. I mean, if Bond is a loner, he would not want this chick hanging out with him. 
again, unfortunately, I was falling back to the staples of why is that woman on the blimp with Roger Moore? You know, it's just what Bond films do. But I expected more of the Craig films after Casino Royale. And here I'm just like, I'm not even noticing it because I think I've become desensitized through 24 of these things. But yeah, the reason I didn't notice it is because it's just the Bond formula coming back through. Yeah, and after they have the conversation in the sinkhole, and Bond understands what she wants to do, bringing her back at the way end, that makes sense to me because they have the scene. So at least they give a little bit of an explanation, albeit it could be Christmas Jones having to defuse a bomb, <laughs> but it's at least an explanation on why Bond does keep her around. Does she have any information? Is she helping him fly to where they're going? Does she have anything that she's giving him that he wouldn't be able to do on his own? I think normally they always give a pretense for why this female is tagging along. Of course, Bond's going to do most of the legwork. That's what Bond does in the situation. And yes, he needs to have the woman at close proximity for an opportune sex scene. But since they're not doing that, and since we're told that she's Secret Service, I'm just wondering, what is she bringing to this plot? You know, they're supposed to be investigating on oil land and, and ends up being completely superfluous that she's there. It could be all these scenes that we see as a plane shoots him down and he finds a reservoir of water and has to take a public bus back. That could have all been Craig without her. The way that it's coming together feels dumb and extraneous and weird. And this is so not the last movie. I'm struggling. I'm hoping that it can really find its footing as we head to this climax. But up to that point, I feel like I'm getting a lot of spinning in circles and false starts towards things that make me excited only to get dampened when that plot strand goes nowhere. The wick goes out and the bomb doesn't go off. If this movie were longer, it probably would make me angry. But even at its short length, I can tell that I'm being, well, dicked around. And nowhere is that more evident than when the final plan about the water is finally told in this long drawn out scene where the general and green are sitting there and we're literally watching the general sign papers. I mean, <laughs> we're just sitting there and then it's like, after he signs the last one, fooled you! It's really a crazy scene. I'm like, really? This is the evil plot? You're going to sell expensive water? Okay. But then we get a big, exciting action scene, and I'm supposed to forget all that. I'm just supposed to know, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, let's watch them fight. This hotel, I don't really understand it, and if indeed hydrogen cells can explode this quickly and burn down, I don't think they should ever build such a structure. But I do love this. As far as villain layers go, they didn't have one in Casino Royale. Le Chiffre didn't have like some layer underneath the casino table where he could do his plots. It was fun to return to that kind of big environment set piece for a finale. I love the hotel. I think it's gorgeous. In actuality, I think it's a telescope in Chile. I don't understand the hotel either. I like the action scene with the fire and all that kind of stuff. I think it's exciting. It's very watchable. I just don't understand the structure and why it's there and what the purpose of it is. And I don't think they tell us that. It's confusing. It's a head scratcher, but it's there just to blow up, literally. It's good. I mean, I really like kinetically what they're doing, the imagery. You know, I really like the henchmen. Another big disappointment here is Dominic has this goofy-looking henchman named Elvis with a bowl cut. And we've seen him coming in and out of this plot. He's tripped. He falls down the stairs. He comes back with a neck brace. He makes me laugh every time I see him. I am imagining that he's going to have a big fight scene here at the end. 
I don't even remember him getting killed, but apparently he does, along with everyone else in this climax. Maybe my review for the whole movie is that what I'm seeing is very exciting. I get engaged in fits and moments here, but I'm weirded out that so little is really being told to us. At the end of the day, Bond is ready to kill himself. I mean, I can't believe that they get trapped in this hotel and that Bond is ready to put a bullet in his head because I guess they don't want to burn up alive. This doesn't seem like anything Bond would ever do, Craig or any other. Not only that, but Camille wants him to put a bullet in her head. She's begging for him to make her death quick. That's, yeah, not a good moment. And, of course, Bond shoots out instead of killing her, but it's not where you want to see the Bond film go. And what's funny is, I knew they'd have to split up. She kills the general, he goes after Green. She does kill the general and Green escapes. And I'm like, well, that is kind of not showing Bond to be as cool as I thought. Yeah, this really ultimately feels like her movie. But also, see, what I'm getting is the reason she's around with the whole parallel of what Bond is going through, but different particulars, right? She's going through this need to get answers and this revenge plot kind of thing. And so her journey ends with killing the general. Bond's journey does not end killing green his journey ends at the end of the movie when he goes to russia hopefully his journey ends in skyfall i still think it's not done yeah it said here that they're the same because they're both using dominic to get what they want how does bond know that dominic knows vesper's boyfriend he's just following the trail he's going from one thing to another from mr white on up to find out who vesper's bosses were i don't think that he knew specifically that this guy would say Vesper's boyfriend was this. I don't even think he necessarily knew Vesper's boyfriend was in on it because the cover story is Vesper's boyfriend was kidnapped. That's what Vesper was told. So I think that he wanted to know who kidnapped Vesper's boyfriend and was probably shocked when Green said off screen in this one of the few scenes I would have liked to have seen in this movie. Oh, by the way, Vesper, remember her? Yeah, her boyfriend, he never loved her. He was using her and never really kidnapped. <laughs> that would have been a good scene to see. Yeah, a lot of weird push and pull here at the end. You're right. Bond doesn't kill Dominic in the fiery hotel explosion where he would be killed in any other Bond movie. They have this protracted scene afterwards in which he's driven out in the back of the car. I guess it's a motif of this movie. Three people are in trunks in this movie with Mathis and White at the beginning. But he drives him out in the middle of the desert, leaves him with a can of oil and says, I'm above vengeance now. I've learned my lesson. You're going to walk and kill yourself by drinking this oil, and I'm going to go about my life. Even though later it's revealed by M that he does go back and put two bullets into him. So how much resolution has Bond reached at the end of this journey by taking it with Cammy? Has Cammy taught him a damn thing about whether killing somebody is satisfying or not? Couple things. First of all, I don't think Bond went back and put the bullets in him. I think it's a callback to the last movie with Lashif. They knew this guy talked, and it's Quantum that put the bullets in green. That's how I read it. Agreed. As for Bond getting over his vengeance, yes, I'm beyond revenge. Now die the way you killed Strawberry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, all the sorts of mixed messages about being high-minded and not wanting vengeance here at the end. But also, don't forget, he's using the cover story of oil to give him the oil to kill himself. I thought it was really kind of a nice, ironic touch, too. There's a classic ending here somewhere, and it involves saying the line, Quantum of Solace, and giving us a definitive answer about where emotionally Bond is at the end of the story. Where it's taken him. How we feel. But I've never felt more lost as to what Bond wants 
when he goes back to Russia, and yeah, we finally get him to meet the boyfriend. He doesn't kill him. He drops Vesper's necklace in the snow. What does that mean? It means he got another clue, and we're going to find out in Skyfall. It's the same as when he got Mr. White in the last one. I disagree, Arnie. I think what happened here is that, you know, the whole movie, he's killing every lead, right? And, and M is so mad that finally he's learned that he doesn't have to kill everyone to get his peace of mind back. That this is the man he's wanting to kill the entire time. When he gets to the point, he doesn't need to. He can get M to interrogate him, that he's progressed, that he's moved on, and he's ready to move on to a different place in his life. I think that's why he doesn't kill him, and I think the whole point of him killing everybody else and not this guy is clear as day to me. I mean, this is someone that got Vesper killed, essentially, if you think about it that way. There's a line about the dead don't want vengeance, and I'm wondering, well, was he doing this for himself, or was he doing it for her, or what? And the fact that his memento, the only thing he has left of her, is that necklace, he lets it go at the end. Is he over Vesper? Has he done her right? Does he not care anymore? When we see Skyfall, will we not have any reference to the tragic loss of the love? I don't understand where we're leaving Bond here. Only that M has taken him in and he's ready for the next show. I take it as he's still trying to avenge her. I mean, when we ended the last one, we find out Vesper made the deal, sacrificed herself to save Bond. Bond is trying to avenge her death. Do we know for a fact he left that boyfriend alive? Brock, you said he's found out he doesn't need to kill everyone. We don't really see what happens. He could be dead, he could be alive, we may find out in the next movie, we may not. But he leaves that necklace, there's the big scene in Casino Royale where she takes off her necklace and says, it's time. It means that at that moment, after the boyfriend confrontation, he's ready to give up his mission for vengeance for Vespa. Here's what I take from it. M says that the man is still alive. M asks, is he dead or something? And Bond says, no, he's alive. To me, this is what the movie is about with Bond's journey. I took it as Bond had a bad breakup. In this case, she's dead. And I looked back on my own life and know that when I got my heart broken and, and the kind of person I was afterwards, and I had that darker period in my life, and I was angry and things like that, and I came to a point that I realized, okay, I'm ready to open myself up again to be a different person open myself up to love again. So I might be pushing myself more into this, but what I saw is a man going through what he needs to go through to get over a girl. And at the end of the movie, he's ready to move on. Well, I certainly hope he's picking up the phone and taking that much-needed booty call for Cammy. He was stupid to let her get on the train without getting her in bed. Dumb, dumb, dumb. <laughs> and also want to, for the record, say that I didn't go around killing people all over the world to get over my girlfriend who broke my heart, but I do understand that part of the Bond journey. That's what I really enjoyed most about this, is watching Bond go through a hard time emotionally. And the way he does it, and the way he deals with it, is different than a lot of us would, but it's still the same gist. So at the end, it's kind of like Tom Cruise throwing the dog tags of Goose into the ocean at the end of Top Gun. He's not forgetting Goose, but he's not holding on as tight either. He's ready to move on into his next part of his life. So Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Quantum of Solace? Stuart. Well, there's no doubt that the formula is off this time. I mean, I wanted more than a quantum of clarity on all the things that this movie raises. I wanted the dollop of downtime. I wanted the smidgen of coherence. I wanted a parsec of patience with this movie so that I could have the kind of rich, elegant experience 
I had with Casino. But that's mostly about how good I thought Casino was. When I remove myself from that feeling, I can recognize that this still is a solid Bond film. You enjoy it in the way that you like maybe a Roger Moore movie. You don't care about the characters in the drama. You go for the action. You don't care how he gets there. You just enjoy the ride. And you're being taken care of by a man who is a much better actor than Roger Moore. I mean, Craig is still great here. And I think that even though I don't understand his drama and his plight, I'm still cooked to this character because I really like this Bond. So it's a weaker movie. It's a recommend, but it's a much weaker movie. Not only does this not live up to what Casino Royale promised, I think it ranks far below Living Daylights, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, some of the best Connery ones. I think that this is middle-tier Bond, but that's still definitely a recommend. I still think that if you liked Casino Royale, adjust your expectations, and you'll have a pretty good time. Arnie. I think you summed it up perfectly, Stuart. When I'm watching this, I'm back in the middling Bonds, and there is good action here. There are some good quips here. There's also a mess here. There's also some unintelligible things here. And I'm really torn on if it's recommendable. It's equally hard because if we'd already seen Skyfall, I could do one of those, well, it's not very good, but you need it to get to the next one, so mild recommend. But I don't know what Skyfall holds in store. All I know is this one is pretty unsatisfying. It's right there on the border, but I'm going to give it a we cannot recommend. There's just not enough there I do appreciate it for the fact that it's short. It would be a much stronger not recommend if it was the length of all the other James Bond films. It's very much on the border, but I'm just so ambivalent to it. The question is, can I recommend something that I'm ambivalent to? And the answer is no. So it is a not recommend. My line on this for five years will stay the same here. I think it's a pretty good action movie, but it's not a very good James Bond movie. I do think there is room in this movie to bring in Q, for example. I don't understand why they don't. They had a room for a Q gadget. Why not use it? Or more aspects of the James Bond that they stripped away, they could have put in here to fill in these gaps that kind of lull. The movie opens up poorly for me, and I got dogged down on it. But once the plot happens, and once the emotional bond comes in, I really get invested in what's going on because of Daniel Craig. And I like what he's doing here, and I like the journey of Bond. But you know what this movie really is to me in this viewing? I really noticed it is I review a lot of books for Star Wars Action News. And in a long series of books like The New Jedi Order, they had these e-novellas in between the books that it kind of adds some insight into the story, but really is not necessary. Well, this being a direct sequel to Casino Royale, if they pick up this movie with Bond already gotten through all this emotional stuff, I didn't have the same problem Arnie had at the end of the movie last time of feeling it wasn't satisfying conclusion. I was happy with the conclusion of the last movie. I think this is an extra story they're telling us here, and it's kind of nice to have some of the Bond character stuff, but it really isn't needed. So I can need novella in those situations, while they may be really fun to read and really give you some insight on the bigger picture, it really isn't needed for us to see. So, all that said, I liked more than I didn't like here, but it is a weak recommend. I have no reason not to recommend this, really. Unlike Arnie, where he has no reason to recommend it, I have nothing that's really bad to have to give it the not recommend. So it's a weak recommend. I just wish they did something a little bit different. And hopefully with the next one, they remember more of Casino Royale and ditch the Quantum of Solace. I hope it's not a direct, direct sequel. I hope that there are links. I really hope there's some time in between. 
I just hope we find out more about Quantum. That opera scene, the Quantum members, my single favorite moment here. And if I were to recommend it, I would be recommending it based on the promise of what they've set up for the future movies, which is peeling back more layers of that onion. But here, they did peel back. They showed us who this organization was behind all the Vesper stuff. It's just the way they did it wasn't very interesting. I want to see the Blofeld now. We see the Spectre. I want to see the Blofeld, and I'm hoping Skyfall does that. And you know, I think there is just a history. From Russia with Love aside, I think any actor's second Bond outing is problematic. Trying to recapture what they did the first time has been hard. You know, Roger Moore had Golden Gun. Dalton had License to Kill. Brosnan had Tomorrow Never Dies. This is Craig's kind of fumbling around as he gets it together. I think they're definitely going to pull it together for Skyfall. My only question is, can they surpass what they've done with Casino Royale? I'm really looking forward to Friday when we get these answers. Absolutely. So please join the conversation on our forums. You can find a link to that on our homepage. Please go to iTunes. Leave us a positive review there so other people can find now playing and enjoy the fun. You can go to Facebook and Twitter and join in the conversations there. And don't forget to go to booksandnachos.com to hear Stuart and I review the original Fleming works as a companion piece to this James Bond movie retrospective. And don't forget, our DVD platinum donation is still available for just a short while longer. Find out the details by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. We are here! I get to say it now! Unbelievable! 24 episodes in! Now Playing will return with Skyfall. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now playing James Bond retrospective series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. She'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. 
That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. She leaves no taste in my mouth. Not even a strawberries? <laughs> that was what I was going for without saying it, yes. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Exactly. And I think that Bond sleeps with her to get her off his back to getting back to where he's. they want him. You know what I mean? Yes, exactly. His magic. I, I thought you were just going to stop with he sleeps yeah. with her to get her off because you pause there and I'm like, well, yes, oh. that would be a reason. I can say it again if you'd like. <laughs> I'm so glad my magic penis statement has made it into the vernacular of now playing now. <laughs> I, you did a good I job have not there. Used it's it yet, nor do I plan to. <laughs> I like this Lepera de la Lunta. I can't. Why do I try to do Spanish? I failed Spanish. I'm not even cut that. <laughs> I have two years of Spanish. I can't even say Lepera de la Dunas. Exactly. <laughs> oh, well. Speaking of Golden Gun, I'm going to be covering that book. It was written after Ian Fleming died. So join me there and see how a posthumous Bond adventure plays out. It was published after Bond, after he died. It wasn't oh, written that, that, that would be hard to do, wouldn't it? <laughs> Involves a medium. Yes. They got solitaire involved, <laughs> some tarot cards. <laughs> Now playing will return with Skyfall. Yay. Yay. What, we don't have another unofficial one to do in between? We don't have some way to prolong the magic? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, the Bond fan says no.